0: I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me, books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend an excellent book that gets readers into the heart of Romans, and I talk about Paul's opening rhetorical move in Romans 1, 18 to 32. So I'm standing here on an absolutely gorgeous summer day, midsummer day, uh, looking out my kitchen window on uh, just the most wonderful day. The weather has been unseasonably cool here in West Michigan, which means it's very comfortable Usually around this time of year, it's a blistering hot and really humid, uh, but we've had some cool nights this morning when I got out for my walk. It was like 55 degrees, which is nuts. Um, beautiful sunrise and uh, the particular beauties of the, the route that I usually go on just um, shone marvelously um, as I made my way. Just so cool. Um, I realized that I will often begin an episode in this manner by noting sort of the scene I look out on. There's nothing thought out about that or intentional. It's just, it gets my mouth moving. I just have to start talking and that's just what comes out. Um, And now I'm a little bit self-conscious about it. So I may have to find a different way to kind of get things up and running. My days, uh, Sarah and I are both seriously introverted people and um we we like limited interaction with other humans we have a blast together uh, but most of our days are spent not talking a whole lot which i love and i know she does too and um after i say goodbye to her in the morning i've got my day to do what i want and um most of that involves avoiding conversation with other people and spending time just being quiet going about my work um alone. And um so not being used to talking, I just have to start talking. Anyway, that's the justification for all of that. Anyway, a quick but important note just to say uh, I give my email address at the start of every episode. My email address is faithimprovised at gmail.com. I'm only saying that because I've gotten a couple of notes through other social media and um, comments I've seen elsewhere online um, inquiring about how to get in touch with me. So just to note that you can email me and I give the email address at the start of every episode. I feel a bit like uh, the professor that gets emails about a due date and that kind of thing. And I just want to write back, look at the syllabus. This used to happen all the time when I was uh, teaching undergraduate students uh, who are still trying to figure out how to navigate life uh, at university. Once in a while, I get that sort of thing from an adult learner at the seminary, but that happens far less often. Um, I used to come home for dinner and around the dinner table would talk about these kind of things that would come up. Like, can you believe this? Oh, my goodness. You Just read the syllabus. What's the deal? Anyway. I think by the time our kids went off to college, they were well aware of um, what could push professors' buttons. Hopefully, they were the kind of college students that didn't do that sort of thing. Anyway, um, actually, I used to start every semester when I taught undergrads, I would, I would tell students, here's how you can avoid being a story at my dinner table. And I uh, would go on to list a variety of typical Behaviors that undergraduate students fell into, which um, always made for interesting dinner table conversation. Anyway, my email address, faithimprovised at gmail.com. Um well, it finally happened. The Cubs finally uh, you know, completed their fire sale. Who knows what other kind of moves are gonna be uh, remaining for the rest of the season and by the end of the season and then the offseason. Um, kind of sad they said goodbye they traded um, Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo and uh, Javi Baez and um, it's just the sentimental part of me, the emotionally attached part of me was just so bummed to kind of break up the core that's been in place since 2015 um, it's just is really sad it's uh I, I easily get, emotionally attached to a team. It's so great to follow a team when you know the players and their personalities and all that kind of thing. Uh, But honestly, it's like they, it needed to be done and they made the right moves. This core, um, had been since 2017 disappointing. They sort of faded down the stretch each season from 2017 and onward. And, um, And this season was no different. I mean, they kind of had a stretch in May where they were going gangbusters. But I think there were a lot of reasons for that that did not have to do with um, possibly holding on to them on into the future. So the Cubs made the moves that they had to make, and it's the cold, hard, heartless, purely capitalistic realities that have corrupted professional sports. And, um, you know, according to the rules of how that all works, it's a total, it's totally understandable. Uh, but for people who who uh, love sport and get really invested in it, it's just a bummer. But that's the reality. And uh, of course, just like any and every ex Cub, Chris Bryant, Javi Baez, and Anthony Rizzo all homered uh, in their first games with their new teams. Uh, long-time Cub fans will be used to that kind of reality. Joe Carter was with the Cubs for some time. And when he went to the Blue Jays, uh, he hit a Game 7 walk-off home run. I think it was in 1993. Um, Dennis Eckersley was a Cub. He went on to win a World Series with the Oakland A's. Loads of ex-Cubs have great success, which is just so typical. Of course they do. Of course they do. That's the reality of being a Cubs fan. Watching former players that you love Go on to great things. Um, I remember when I was 12 years old in 1984, mid-season, the Cubs traded my favorite baseball player, Bill Buckner, uh, to the Red Sox, and because they had a, a first baseman, Leon Durham, that they were going to go into the future with. And uh, at that time, Bill Buckner's knees were all banged up, and he only had, you know, not many good years uh, left in his uh, beaten-up body. Um, uh, baseball playing years. Um, and I, I honestly, I couldn't believe it. i thought I thought the sun would not come up the next day. Um, but as it does, it did. Life goes on, and um, these are sort of the heartbreaks of sports fandom. By the way, Bill Buckner, um, just because he is largely remembered in the popular imagination for one awful play, Uh, in game five of the 1986 World Series, um, he's not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He should be. Look up his stats. He's had one of the most amazing big league careers. He should be in the Hall of Fame. The number of hits he had, the kind of fielder that he was, one of the best doubles hitters ever. Man, just a great all-around guy. Also featured prominently in, um, was it season eight? of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, just such a super person, put up with a lot of garbage from uh, a lot of people, people in Boston after 1986. He's a big reason that got you to that series, people. Um, and sadly, that one play sort of, well, it cost them, as did other mistakes that were made by other Red Sox players, but certainly it's tainted his legacy, and that's that's tragic. These things happen. Um, I wanted to kind of roll out this thought. This uh, I had a series of sort of see if I can bring this together coherently. Uh, on Saturday, we had some laughs here at the house. Uh, Sarah is in the middle of reading a novel that is set during the time of the Spanish Inquisition, and uh, she was telling me a little bit about it. And of course, that led to our um, playing the great and brilliant scene from the Mel Brooks film, History of the World Part Two, The Inquisition, which I highly recommend. It is like, it's just one of the episodes from that film where Mel Brooks sort of overviews uh, Western history. And uh, he turns The Inquisition into sort of a Broadway musical, which is so Mel Brooks. It's just one of his absolute masterful strokes. And um, of course, what's going on there is that people are being compelled to be Christian. And that led to, uh, I had to go out after that and do some yard work and was thinking about the Inquisition and compulsions to being Christian and, um, was just pondering reasons why people are Christian. And it seems to me that, um, in the inherited framework that I, uh, was part of in sort of, um, you know, an American evangelical way of thinking about things in unpacking that I came to see that so much of how I was taught to think about being Christian and whether I should be Christian or not was sort of built on hell, like hell and the threat of hell is kind of the center of evangelical faith. And it's the starting point for evangelical theologizing about salvation in many ways. Um, and what I mean is, like, uh, the threat of hell kind of is this foundation for building the superstructure of evangelical thinking about so many things, like, you know, sexuality, um, moral behavior, uh, whether or not you should be Christian. It's like you you do all these things, or you want to do them, or you want to not do them, because you want to avoid hell, um, and. I was wondering, like, if you just eliminated the threat of hell, would you want to be Christian? Why or why not? Like, if you got rid of any notions of, like, supposed to or should or else, if you, if you got rid of any, all those kind of notions, would you still want to be Christian? Like, what is the motivation for being Christian? And it seems to me that um, motivations that are largely negative, like you should do this so that you avoid hell, or you should be a Christian, or you're going to go to hell. Um, motivations like that rob being Christian of its joy and delight. And it's, it's kind of um, compelling motivations, um, because everything is just negative. You want to avoid Certain bad outcomes. It's just that that leads to a mode of life that is largely joyless and uh, constraining and oriented by drudgery. And it's filled with have tos and supposed tos and do this or else. Um, but it seems to me that this struck me some time ago being Christian should be great. Like, I should want this, I should want to be Christian. And um, having a Christian in your life should be great. Like if I'm a Christian person, um, I should be, it should be great to have me as a spouse, or it should be great to have me as a parent. It should be great to have me as a neighbor. And like, what would that be like? And if I'm a confessing Christian person, it should be great to be me. This should be a great reality. And if it's not, then there's something messed up about that. Um, like there's all these. I've I've talked a little bit about paradoxes in the past, but something that Jesus says just struck me some time ago when He says that you know take my oak upon you, uh, because my burden is light. And I began thinking, like, do I feel that? Like, do I feel and do I sense that being Christian is this lighter reality? Or do I sense it as a heavy reality? And if I sense it and feel it and experience it as this heavy burden, then I should ask myself, have I really taken up Jesus's burden? Because this is actually a burden. Like this feels heavy. This feels uh, like drudgery. This feels like I'm dragging. This feels like I I have to and should. Um there's something wrong about that. And so I sort of kind of turned all that on its head and just started asking, like, is this something that I want? Do I want this? Do I? Does it feel light? Does it feel life-giving? Do I experience this as goodness and as joy? And am, am I compelled by this? So anyway, um, I think that that is a good thing to be asking ourselves. If we are Christian, what is the motivation? What's driving this? is this something that i prefer is this do i see this as a preferable reality over something else do i see this as a desirable reality over something else and then if i do what are the reasons what what what's good about this why is this good and not don't fall into like salesperson mode like yes here's why other people should no like just if, if it's just a self-contained reflection on your own part for yourself um, and not sort of a defense to someone else. Yes, this is why I'm Christian because it's, it's, it's awesome. It's great. Um, I mean, do you really feel that? Do you really believe that? I've come to see that the portrait of the, uh, in the new Testament of Christian realities actually is really liberating and it is really hopeful and it's life-giving and it's compelling And I don't feel like I need to be in the place where I sort of give an apologetic, it's the best over against other stuff. Um, If I'm sort of being an intellectual good neighbor, I can inhabit a Christian reality with respect to my neighbors who are not Christian or who are of some other way of being in the world. So I don't have to compare it to anything. Um, But as I see it in the New Testament, this actually is a compelling reality And there are resources in scripture for dealing with all the dark moments of life, all the frustrating moments of life, all the hard, um, alienating moments of life. Um, and there are are resources in scripture for navigating all the wonderful aspects of life and for seeing this world in all of its goodness and all of its brokenness. And it's a really compelling vision or I'm compelled by it. And, um, I don't have to sell that to anybody else and i'm not interested in doing that at all i'm merely interested in inhabiting this reality because i just i really like it i really like it so anyway just was thinking about that um all based on a conversation about a novel an enjoyment of the brilliant mel mel brooks film and then you know going out to cut the grass and having my mind wander a bit this is sort of a related point to what I just was saying uh, but I was thinking about this this morning and um, how it is that the ways that we configure um, being Christian or, or some of the things that we say about our Christian existence um, sort of depicts a posture or a stance toward the world and toward other people and I think this one this this might be one of the reasons why uh, so few of us see being Christian as actually like positively compelling, um, and that is because I, I there are just some common ways of of thinking and talking about being Christian or our perceived tasks or tasks in being Christian. And I only mention these because I heard them uh, from just different folks recently in conversation, or um, I don't know. I just was part of some conversations where these kind of expressions were used, and they're very common. Um, someone was talking about you know wanting to be able to defend their faith, and uh, a guy said you know he r- really wants to dig into some resources because he wants to know why he believes what he believes. And these are, I think, these are very common ways of thinking and talking about about being Christian and. I think that if we, in my opinion anyway, applying some pressure to these kinds of ways of talking about being Christian, I think just makes them collapse. I just don't think, these are just not good expressions, or they're not fruitful expressions. Um, Especially thinking about um, defending Christian faith, which I think is one of the most unfruitful ways of thinking and talking about being Christian, or the task of being Christian. Um, It seems that that expression kind of launches, or I guess I would say it this way, think about what that does to the imagination. Um, When you think about defending the faith, there's something about, um, or defending the Bible, there's there's something about what that kind of an expression imagines it kind of, um, launches this picture where the Bible is sitting there on a table or on the ground, like, um, like a helpless baby animal or something like that. And my job is to protect it from predators. I am, I am sort of, I have my back to the Bible and I'm on the lookout. Um, you know, I'm skeptical. I'm looking at other people as if they are threats and which affects how I see other people. They're threats. They're not opportunities. Or, I mean, you know, there's danger out there. Danger lurks. And you've got to be able to defend your faith or defend the faith. Um, Which seems to me to be an unfruitful way of thinking about my relationship to Scripture and the Christian faith. And it's an unfruitful way of thinking about my relationship to other people. Um, I don't want to be in a posture where my back is to the Bible. Or where my back is to scripture. And I don't want to be looking at other people as if they are threats or be always on the lookout for threat, as if I need to sort of either provoke arguments or anticipate arguments. Um, Yeah, these are just, these are all very unfruitful ways of thinking. And um, it seems to me that a far more fruitful posture toward the Christian faith is that it is this wonderful, um, massive, wild, Beautiful reality that I get to explore and I get to understand over the course of a long period of time. And that's why I, I don't think that there's much fruit in saying something like, you know, I want to know why I believe what I believe. Um, which when you really think about it, it, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Like I believe something, but I don't really know why. Um, I mean, how how core to your conception of things is that if you don't even know why you believe it, or do you believe it if you don't? really understand it anyway um it seems to me that being christian and my relationship to scripture is that is the world of scripture is like this massive world that scripture sort of constructs and it has wild and wonderful diversity to it it's like a it's like a, a national park out west that is just like yellowstone or something that has like a a diversity of terrains, and, um, you know, like some places out west, like a variety of climates within not uh, a lot of geographical space. And it's my wonderful opportunity to explore it and to understand it and to learn it over time and to delight in it and uh, to see its particulars and to take in the vistas. Uh, So, the way that I understand being Christian involves far more of like an exploratory posture and an exploratory approach, uh, which makes other people, whoever they are, not threats to the Bible or threats to me or to my faith, but they are wonderful opportunities for discovery uh, through conversation or, or whatever. Because one of the things that scripture does is that it opens us up to the world and it opens up the world to us. It renders reality in the most life giving way, in the most wonderful way. And so, my joyful participation with anybody and everybody in my uh, lifelong discovery of the fullest conception of reality that I can get, anybody else is going to be a partner in that as we converse about things, you know, sublime or mundane. So, anyway, I think that that's a far better way of looking at scripture and myself and other people and the typical ways that we might render those relationships, I think are very, are, are just not compelling and they're not life-giving and they don't, they sort of, um, portray reality as very, uh, dark and small. And, um, you know, my tack, my task as defensive instead of one that um, is anticipatory and compelling and life-giving and wonderful. So anyway, I'm not looking out for people who are on the attack. I am uh, looking out for partners in the wonderful task of exploration. Um, If I could commend another podcast, I think I may have talked about this before. I only listen to uh, maybe two or three podcasts. Oh, the series, the rise and fall of Mars Hill is ongoing from Christianity today. I think it's really, really fascinating. And, um, um it, I think it's not just out of, you know, morbid curiosity that I'm following it, um, I think it's very instructive as far as uh, American Christianity as a whole, sort of, uh, exposing the desires and the longings of American evangelicalism over the last couple of decades. And how that culminated in a really destructive community dynamic, um, because that sort of thing goes on a lot uh, around the country and around the world. So I would highly recommend that. Um, But another podcast I listen to regularly is the Ezra Klein Show, uh, put out by the New York Times. And he always has just very, very interesting guests that he converses with. And in a recent episode, he talks to uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones and uh, Todd nehisi Coates, um, I've read several of his works. I've not read uh, much of uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, although she is the initiator of the 1619 Project. And it was a really interesting conversation about wanting to understand the character of American history in its fullest scope, which is uh, an increasingly unpopular notion in the country these days. And there are a lot of folks, especially um, people from uh, the Republican Party, that, but, that represent a massive, massive impulse that runs through American culture at large, that runs through white American culture at large. And that is um, a hesitation with coming to coming fully to grips with the fullness of our story as a nation. Um, we just don't want to we don't want to reckon with the very ugly uh, history of genocide and removal of indigenous people. And we don't want to come to full grips with um, the history of slavery in this country and its ongoing effects and the history of injustice ever since, uh, 1865 that has been visited upon black people in America by white America and by, um, through a variety of, uh, laws, social practices, um, norms, structures, and, you know, systemic evil. And, um, as a white person, I understand that. I mean, because uh, I've had five decades of training as a white person in America, and so I've learned the values well, even though I didn't really know it until uh, the last uh, half decade or decade, as I've sought to unpack all of that. So I know that hesitation well. Um, but for me, as a confessing Christian, I also... Um, I value the blessings and the life that comes from ongoing practices of confession of sin and repentance. And I'm fully convinced that a life and a community dynamic of ongoing repentance taps us into the life and the joy of God himself. And so um, as part of that, that involves the practices of confession of sin and A Christian engagement with American history, it seems to me, would be to invite the fullest exploration um, of the entire story, the whole story, all of it, so that we can um, reckon with injustice in our time and uh, make moves corporately towards justice. And as Christian people who have been made to be The justice of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and in Romans 3. Um, That should be our aim. Let's get it all out into the open. Uh, John says in 1 John chapter 1 that if we deny our sin, we are denying the truth, and um, God's truth does not reside in us. So as Christian people, that's an essential practice, is confession of sin. And if you're part of a A liturgical church, as I am, that is one of the things that we do uh, week to week is we have part of the liturgy is confession of sin. And then the promise of forgiveness follows right after that. Um, And in the liturgy, uh, the passing of the peace follows right after the assurance of forgiveness, which is a beautiful rhythm um, indicating that Uh, when we confess our sins, we are assured of forgiveness. And then we look around at the community and we greet one another with the peace of Christ, so to know and inhabit the joy of God and to know and inhabit the peace of the Lord, Jesus Christ, as political communities gathered under his Lordship, uh, we're not going to enjoy that peace and that ongoing dynamic of renewal, unless we come to grips with the truth of what has happened and um, the state of play in our current national life. So anyway, um, it is hard, it is really hard to learn the truth, by the way. Um, I heard from someone recently who's been reading um, uh, the book that I recommended several episodes back on, uh, man, my brain is melting on um, reparations, and she said this is really hard to read, and she reckoned, recognized that it's it's painful, and it is. It is really hard. Um, I mentioned that uh, as we made our way out west, uh, Sarah and I were listening to the Indigenous People's History of the United States, and there were times we had to turn it off. It's brutal. It is just brutal things you learn about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, basically every figure um, uh, among the founders and then national leaders on through the decades and uh, well into uh, the 20th century, it's been, it is an unspeakably ugly history. And um, a big part of learning that history is to enter into the sufferings of others as an exercise of fellowshipping with the sufferings of Christ. People have been made to suffer unspeakable horrors in the course of American history. And um, it's a a privilege, if you think about it from a Christian perspective, to fellowship with those people by bearing that wound, um, by bearing that burden along with them because as Christian people, that kind of practice uh, taps us ever more powerfully into the sufferings of Christ, and that dynamic unleashes the resurrection power of Christ into Christian community uh, life. So, that is sort of a theological rationale for engaging with American history from an utterly, fearlessly, truthful perspective. Um, Leaving nothing uncovered, reckoning with it all, only enjoying um, being the justice of God and the life that that gives us awaits us, as painful as it will be. But like I said before, um, Scripture provides resources for us to inhabit those those dark moments, and uh, that's the language of lament, and that's the practice of confession of sin, and um, That also involves the practices associated with repentance, which will involve active steps in doing God's justice. Uh, One last thing, and uh, as far as preliminaries go, just to say, um, I have several copies remaining of my Commentary and Mark. The publisher sent me a box or two of these, and um, I was very happy to send loads of these out to friends um, who've helped me along the way. And, uh, the publisher was very generous and sent me loads of them. So if you want one, send me an email at faithimprovised at gmail.com. And I'll be very happy to send one to you. Um, some of the extras at the bottom of the box have, um, I don't know, one or two have some crappy bindings in them. I don't know what happened. Um, but if you want a copy of my commentary on Mark, uh, and the story of God commentary series, I'll be happy to send you a copy. Let me know. I want to tell you about a book. It's by Beverly Roberts Gaventa, and it's called When in Romans? An Invitation to Linger with the Gospel According to Paul, and it's published by Baker Academic. Dr. Gaventa is Distinguished Professor of New Testament at Baylor University and is one of the most interesting, insightful, and compelling Pauline scholars in the world. Ernst Kasemann, the great New Testament scholar from a previous generation, famously said, the history of Pauline interpretation is the history of the apostles' ecclesiastical domestication. Powerful words. I've certainly found that to be true in the Christian tradition in which I was raised. I was trained and taught to interpret Paul in a constraining and limiting manner. This apostle who had granted to the church a sort of constipated vision of Christian existence. I've come to see that we had read Paul wrongly, and that our conception of what he said about Christian realities was precisely what he wanted to subvert and overturn. In many ways, Beverly Gaventa stands in a tradition of Pauline interpretation initiated by Kazaman, that of apocalyptic, which broadens the scope of Paul's vision of the work of God in Christ to include the entire cosmos. In Christ, God is recapturing creation from the grip of hostile cosmic powers, and he's liberating it, along with creatures, for his glory. It's a magnificently compelling conception of salvation that invites all people into the joy and delight of God's liberating work. Dr. Gaventa is one of the most clear and compelling exponents of this way of reading Paul, and she's a careful exegete, an excellent writer, and a clear communicator. She's been working in Romans for years now, and the fruit of her work can be found in journal articles and book chapters. This short book, however, when in Romans, is intended for people who would not normally read a book about Romans, she says. She offers it as a sort of invitation to this letter, focusing on aspects of Romans that she finds crucial, both for the first century and for our own. So if you're looking for a clear, easily readable, and accessible introduction to studying Romans— this is the book for you. It consists of four chapters that get at key dynamics to keep in mind when reading the letter. Her first chapter is called, When in Romans, Watch the Horizon. And it sketches masterfully and in simple terms, the cosmic horizon of Paul's gospel. In the Protestant West, and this is certainly true for the evangelical tradition, which I was raised, salvation is typically regarded as a transaction that I, as an individual, conduct with God. The gospel is thought of as the news about how I get my sins forgiven and how I can end up with a new eternal destination after death. As Casemar would say, that's a tragic domestication of Paul. Gaventa demonstrates that, according to Paul, the cosmic powers of sin and death have hijacked creation, including humanity, and have held it enslaved. And Paul's understanding of what God accomplished in Christ is cosmic. Salvation concerns God's powerful action in Jesus Christ to reclaim humanity from the powers of sin and death. This first chapter then is a wonderfully simple and clear overview of Paul's apocalyptic gospel. She devotes a chapter to Abraham demonstrating the central place that he plays in salvation history and in Paul's argument in this letter. She has a chapter on the glory of God in Romans and the thread of humanity as God's glory. In Romans 1, human worship, that is, humanity as the image and glory of God, was distorted. In Christ, God is renewing in humanity the image and glory of God, a narrative thread which culminates in the twin exhortations in Romans 12:1 and 2 and 15, 7. In the first of those, Paul exhorts the Roman Christians to present their bodies as a singular unified sacrifice to God, which is their fitting worship. And in 15.7, Paul commands the competing factions to welcome one another to the glory of God. In Romans, then, Paul reveals how in the gospel, God is recovering human worship for the glory of God, which brings us into the place of genuine human flourishing. In her final chapter, Gaventa covers the ultimate aim of Paul's letter to bring the divided factions to the place where they are unified, offering one another rich hospitality as they welcome one another. Like I said, if you're looking for an accessible and inviting short study of Romans that gets you right into the heart of Paul's presentation, this is a place to start. The book is by Beverly Roberts Gaventa, and it's called When in Romans, an invitation to linger with the gospel according to Paul. And it's published by Baker Academic. You can order it at a 30% discount and free shipping at bakerbookhouse.com, or you can get it from some other independent bookstore. So, Romans 1 18 to 32. This is the passage where Paul just sort of jumps in and starts uh, his presentation to the Roman Christians. I mentioned previously that uh, I do not think that uh, verses 16 and 17 are sort of like a thesis statement or or the theme of Romans as a whole. I think those are just the the concluding statements that Paul makes in his letter opening, and they have a lot more to do with backing up the statement that he makes in verse 15. Um. And Paul's statement about not being ashamed of the gospel, I think, is just sort of um, a very tender pastoral statement, uh, meant to be meant to be sort of an encouragement to the Roman Christians uh, in the midst of all of their discouragement, in their communities kind of uh, splitting up and falling apart, and talking about how he's not ashamed of the gospel. That it's not this; it's not um, a hopeless reality. It's one uh, that is actually full of hope. And that uh, should not bring any shame whatsoever. So verses 1 to 17 are, are just part of the introduction. And then I think that the four that begins the conjunction that begins verse 18 and following is transitional. The, the fours that begin verse 16 and 17 are the four in verse 16 indicates that the statement in verse 16 is like a backup or a bolstering for verse 15 and then verse 17 is sort of a backup or bolstering of verse 16. Verse 18 starts the presentation that Paul is making uh to the Roman Christians. And uh, just to say what this passage is not before I talk about what it is, um this this passage is not like the bad news before the good news. This is one way that I had heard it. Um and I I've, I I reject this way of reading Romans. Uh, Romans is not um, sort of like how individuals get saved. It's not a a plan for salvation for individuals. That is how I learned to read this letter so that Romans 1 is the really bad news. Everybody's a sinner. Uh, Romans 2, uh, judgmental people are bad too. Self-righteous people. uh, Also, second half of Romans 2, the Jews are bad. Uh, Romans 3, everybody's bad and uh 321 god has provided salvation for every individual meant to be received by faith in christ bunch of the rest of romans eh, kind of confusing you know i mean it's just whatever there, there are ways of reading that skip ahead a couple passages uh romans six individuals battle with sin uh romans seven some more battling with sin on the part of the individual romans eight hey victory uh, on the part of the, the individual And that way of reading Romans, I find entirely unhelpful and um, mystifying with regard to many of the things that Paul says. And um, I mean, it's just one factor in all this. The pretty much every you in Romans is you plural. Paul's talking to communities. So he's addressing um, a range of house churches in Rome where uh, there is division at work between, um, two groups of house churches. But just to say, this is not the bad news before the good news. Um, the good news of salvation, this is slightly different. Uh, and so I I just mentioned the situation that's up and running there. And that has to be kept in mind constantly. Um, the way that Paul understands these two groups, he he calls them in, in chapters 15 or sorry, 14 and 15, the weak and the strong. And the way that Paul understands the weak is they are likely making accusations uh, like verses 18 to 32 against the strong. That is, uh, the weak are passing judgment on the strong. And the weak are that group in the Roman house churches. um, And I'm becoming more convinced that they are Gentile. Uh, They're not Jewish Christians, but they are Gentiles that imagine that they need to uh, convert and become Jewish. They need to change ethnicity and take on a Jewish way of life in order to faithfully inhabit their discipleship to Jesus. And the strong are that group. Um, however, they're distributed in the, in the Roman house churches. They're that group that are confident that they can remain in their Gentile identity, their non-Jewish identity, and be followers of Jesus who is uh, the image of the one true God, the God of Israel, the Messiah of the God of Israel, that they can actually remain Gentile and be followers of Jesus in this sense. Um, and the weak are passing judgment, and there are, they're sort of pressing their case. And as a part of that, uh, the weak are imagining the strong in terms of verses 18 to 32. That is, the weak are accusing the strong of uh, of being stuck in this long history of the Gentile descent into idolatry and degradation. The weak are saying about the strong, that's your history. And the moral stain of that history still sticks to you. You can't escape it. Um, The weak are Gentiles that imagine that they have escaped that history. That's not their history. They now belong to the history of Israel, to the history of God's people. Um, and they this is one of the ways that they are seeking to establish a place of superiority and to gain kind of theological leverage against the strong because they have now become Jewish and have taken on an identity um, associated with Israel. they have priority in the Roman house churches, and they, you know, get to say what goes over against the strong. And I think that this is where um, that expression comes in to the Jew first and then to the Greek. I think, and this is my opinion, that that's a slogan that the weak are using to justify their, um, their adoption of a, of a a status of superiority over against the strong. Uh, Paul uses it in a very benign sense in his initial usage of it in chapter one, earlier in the greeting. Um, But then he, in chapter two, where he's going to round on this group, he's going to sort of pounce on them and uh, confront them for their hypocrisy. Uh, he uses it in in sort of an increasingly ironic way, um, one commentator says. I think it's he's even using it in a very sarcastic way in chapter two, recognizing that that might be a slogan that is being used. And I'm taking that... Um, just because this is a very unique expression, it's not used anywhere else. Paul also always talks about uh, Jews and Gentiles. Um, he doesn't talk about Jews and Greeks elsewhere in his letters. And um, in 1 Corinthians, he quotes to the Corinthians loads of slogans that they are using in their fellowships or their fellowship uh, to justify some of their behavior. And Paul uh, in many places in first Corinthians cites a slogan and then reverses it. Um, anyway, that's one of his rhetorical devices. Uh, so I think that 118 to 32 is the kind of way of talking about the strong that is characteristic among the weak. And this is very similar. Uh, Romans 118 to 32 commentators have pointed this out for generations. This passage is bears loads of similarities to um, a Jewish text like uh, Wisdom of Solomon, which you could find as part of the Apocrypha if you just look up Bible Gateway. If you don't have a copy of the NRSV, you can look this up on Bible Gateway and uh, select the NRSV version, and um, it will contain Wisdom of Solomon, especially chapters 12 to 15. That is a, It's a Jewish text from around Paul's time that portrays, um, we always have to be careful in, in talking about, um, about Jewish communities and Jewish writers and thinkers and mindsets from the first century, because we can often portray a sort of an ethnic superiority as if we're looking down on them and uh, be dismissive and not recognize the complexity of a Jewish thought and a community life in the first century. Um, and we also don't want to sort of apply to all jews in the first century some kind of a degraded or degenerative um, way of life that is fostered by a really irresponsible way of reading new testament texts but uh, wisdom of solomon uh, reflects perhaps a typical way of thinking about uh, non-jewish people um, from the first century world and especially chapters 12 to 15. Which it is very instructive to read that text and then read Romans one eighteen to thirty two. Um, I've got I've got Roman uh, sorry Wisdom of Solomon twelve to fifteen uh, in a document form. If anybody wants to check those out, email me. I'll be very happy to send you a copy of that. Um, but it it portrays commentators have have wondered is Paul in conversation with wisdom here. Is he um, engaging with some of these viewpoints? And if he is, in what way? And uh, I take this from Stanley Stowers, which his book, Rereading Romans, I think is one of the absolutely most explosively insightful books on Romans. I read it a few years ago, and I just think so many parts of it are just brilliant. Um, But he says that 118 to 32 is sort of a typical... Jewish screed denouncing uh, Gentile idolatry, and very much like what's going on in Wisdom of Solomon. Um, and what that text portrays, Wisdom of Solomon, it portrays um, you know sinning Jews as able to repent and to be forgiven. But the Gentile world is sort of hopelessly lost in idolatry and headed for destruction. Uh, so, Because they are the people of God, the historic people of the God of Israel, uh, when Jews sin, they are able to repent. And God is merciful uh, to draw them to himself and to bring about their repentance and forgive them. But for the idolatrous nations, the situation is just really, really different. Um, They are just headed for destruction because they've hopelessly turned their backs on the one true God. Um, Even though sort of creation screams at them, and uh, you know the the existence of God can be seen if you just you know penetrate into these visible signs that are left everywhere. Um, yeah, you get the all these kind of notes in Wisdom of Solomon, and so it's very likely that what that that kind of rhetoric has been adopted by the weak as they pass judgment on the strong. Sure, people who are uh, among this uh, the weak. Sure, it's the case that. Um, they might say that they um, have been sinful, and but they've repented, and uh, now that they are disciples of Jesus, they, you know, their history goes back to the historic people of God, and they are not in the same kind of condition as the strong who are just hopelessly mired in this mortal stain um, of non-Jewish idolatry in in sort of the world at large. So just to say. One eighteen to thirty two, Romans one eighteen to thirty two is basically a setup, and it's a setup for Romans two verse one, where Paul is going to turn on the weak and confront them for uh, for being judgmental, for, uh, confront them for their hypocrisy, and um, yeah, I was reading this last week. Uh, my friend uh, Sigvi Tonstad uh, wrote a commentary on Romans I picked up a couple years ago. Uh, at the Bible conferences in San Diego. Uh, He wrote a commentary called The Letter to the Romans, Paul Among the Ecologists. And this is in the Earth Bible Commentary. I picked this up a couple years ago, uh, saw Sigvi, we we know each other from our days at St. Andrew's together. He's from Norway, and of course, he's a medical doctor, you know, multidisciplinary genius. Um, This commentary is just so good. Check it out. His last name, Tonstad. Uh, T-O-N-S-T-A-D, I would highly recommend it. It's very lively and really fascinating. Um, He talks about how 2-1 is a smackdown, which I think is a great expression. Uh, This is exactly what Paul is doing. So many commentators imagine that um, because Paul sort of sets up this conversation partner in much of Romans, and that starts in 2-1, because he sort of sets up this imaginary conversation partner um, which is a, a typical rhetorical way, uh, typical rhetorical device from the ancient world, used in sort of teaching. Because he does that, Romans is like sort of benign; it's not meant to be confrontational. But C.V. was like, "No, this is like two one is a bomb dropping on the Roman community," and I totally agree. I think two one is begins an explosive section of Romans where Paul just goes after this group that is passing judgment. And Paul is going to argue that the history, the story of 118 to 32 is shared by all the Roman Christians. Uh, in fact, right there in verse 18, you get the, the first use of all. Well, it appears somewhere in places in the, in the greetings. But I said last episode, when you read through Romans 1, um, certainly to the end of 4, Uh, but on into the beginning of chapter five, circle all the uses of the word all. Because what Paul is doing in this opening section of Romans is he's bringing all the Roman Christians together. They are all ungodly. They are all sinners. They're all unrighteous, all idolaters. They were all enemies of God. And he's uniting them all together because that's going to end up being good news because christ died for sinners he died for his enemies he died for the ungodly and the very identity of god is that he justifies the ungodly so if you're part of that group you are included in the scope of christ's death um if you claim that only the other group is ungodly, unrighteous; they're sinners, they're enemies of God. They're the ones that are mired in the long uh, descent into gentile degradation and idolatry. If you're making that accusation against other people, then maybe you are not part of the group for whom Christ died, and that's not good. In fact, Paul is really sarcastic in chapter five um, when he says, "You know, one would hardly die for a righteous person, though for a good person, eh, you yeah, know, maybe, but God." demonstrates his love for us in that at the very time that we were sinners, Christ died for us, and God reconciles his enemies. So just to say that's where all this is headed, reading 118 to 32, you've got to keep in mind that it is part of a setup. And if the weak are calling the strong, ungodly, sinners, unrighteous, and they imagine that they are the godly ones, that is trouble. And that's where Paul is going. So keep in mind that that's Paul's rhetorical purpose. He's setting up the judging group. And so 118 to 32 um, is, is portrayed basically in the darkest possible terms in order to arouse their judgmental sentiments. He wants to arouse the weaks judgmental sentiments uh making them think that he's on their side so it's it's rhetorically shaped to have that effect on them and i'm saying that to say that we need to be very careful how we think theologically from a text like this i mean if that is paul's rhetorical purpose um it is it's really precarious to take anything from 118 to 32 and just sort of uh, jump theologically into making some kind of appropriation for anybody's identity in our day. Um so I want to make a couple points about this, and this may require a little bit of flexibility of mind. The way that um, the way that we think about identity and Christian identity uh, is requires a little bit of kind of plastic thinking. that is, you know get out of either ors and get out of the typical logical moves that your mind makes and um yeah it requires a little bit of creativity and nimbleness of mind so a couple points about this just thinking about 118 to 32 and moving theologically to our day first uh when we think about christian identity 118 to 32 is how christians can think of our pre-christian identity that is when we think about if you are a Christian person or you are set within Christian community and from the, the, the place of being in Christ, as we look back on our pre-Christian past, this is our story. This is who we were. Our history goes back to the corruption of the image of God and to the descent of humanity into idolatry. And, you know, Christian people confess we're sinners, we have an ugly history, and God has rescued us. Uh, Stanley Harawas said, you know, you only become a sinner when you become a Christian. And that is the case uh, because before you were Christian, you didn't name the things that you did as sin. But being Christian is learning this whole new vocabulary and this entirely different Different way of identifying yourself, and that's that's what's necessary here. Uh, this is this is sort of this is Christians pre-Christian history. Secondly, and related to that, one eighteen to thirty-two is not how Christians should look at non-Christian people. That is when when we get baptized into Christ, we get an entirely new identity. We get a new history. We get a new present and we get a new future. And part of that identity that we uh, take on is owning this reality about our past. But we also become people who love our neighbors as ourselves. We seek to love and serve our neighbors, to honor them and to treat them with dignity and care. And part of all that according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, means believing the best about them, hoping for the best from them, seeing them in the best light. So Romans one eighteen to 32 is not like the first step of evangelism. Like, It's not the case that we try to get people to recognize this is who you are. You are part of the long story of decline and descent into the degradation of Gentile idolatry. Admit it. You've broken God's law, haven't you? You've surrendered image of God, haven't you? It's like, that is a complete corruption. That's a corrupted way of using this passage. We don't seek to apply it to other people who are not Christian. This passage constructs our past if we own a Christian identity. It does not construct the past of other people. Thirdly, third point. Uh, when we read this passage as the history of Christian people before being in Christ, it becomes part of a larger narrative thread that runs through Romans, which is so fascinating. There's sort of this narrative substructure to Romans in which, you know, Paul sort of tells the story of what went wrong with humanity and what God has done in Christ to redeem that situation. And this story in many ways, kind of retells the entire story of Scripture as it runs from creation to human rebellion uh, to Abraham and the creation of Israel, all the way to what God has done in Christ. And this narrative thread is really important to understand. And it's just so fascinating. It just, in many ways, it just kind of defines who we are as Christian people and the big story that we're in. And In a sense, you know, when people call Romans Paul's gospel, um, there's one level at which I don't think that that's very helpful. That is on the surface rhetorical level, as far as what Paul is delivering to the Roman Christians, it's not his gospel. It's a letter that he writes to solve a problem um, of division and to bring about unity. But at this sort of deep substructural level, the narrative that Paul deploys. To bring about the resolution of this conflict, that is Paul's gospel, and so it's just I, w- I just want to distinguish between those. And if you um, if you don't understand that that deeper narrative substructure, I think it's easy to be led astray in thinking that this is sort of how Paul would talk about the gospel. Um, but in chapter one, uh, one eighteen to thirty two. Oh, by the way, I have. Um, I have a couple of, uh, I gave a paper some years ago at a scholarly meeting, and then I uh, published a chapter in a book where I I bring out this um, narrative substructure. And so in one, I sort of uh, try to talk about it from Paul's focus on bodies, because there's a ton of body talk in Romans, which I find absolutely fascinating. Um, And then in the other, I take that and apply it to uh, sports in, in a book that was um, published on um, theology and sport. And uh, which, because Paul's talking a lot about bodies and um, bodies participate in sport, I thought that there was a lot of fruit that could be born from reflection on that and to think about redeemed participation in sport. So if you want copies of those papers, uh, email me. i be happy to send it to you, them, to you. Um, So here's that narrative as it begins in chapter one, in 118 to 32, Paul indicates uh, God's intentions for creation and for humanity within creation. He talks about, uh, he mentions twice uh, the the, the exchange or the change. You could translate that Greek verb uh, either way. And uh, what Paul is saying is that humanity was created in the image of God, and that is A really rich notion that assumes um, this is not an assumption. uh, The particulars of the text of Genesis and beyond, and all all throughout Scripture, kind of work with this biblical theological notion. Um, But that sort of depicts all of creation as God's temple. Creation is God's dwelling place. Uh, The invisible, transcendent God is, uh, you know, rules in and over. All of creation as his temple, and you know, with regard to temples in the ancient world, when you go into the temple, you see the image there, and that is humanity. This is what God intended for his creation, for for image bearers to conduct themselves within creation um, in such ways that they depicted what the unseen God is like. So, God, or sorry, humanity is God's image. That is, it has a. Humanity has a really strategic place, strategic role to play within God's temple that is creation. And if you take a look at Psalm eight, um, Psalm eight kind of picks up the language of Genesis one and two, where Genesis one and two portray humanity being uh, God's image in that God gave them a uh, rule over creation. They were supposed to, humanity was supposed to bring about the flourishing of creation and have this kind of reciprocal relationship with creation inhabiting it joyfully, and also fostering creation's flourishing. And the tasks associated with that in Genesis 1 and 2 are also listed in Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, uh, the psalmist says that uh, with regard to those tasks, God crowned the human with glory and honor. And so when you think about image of God, glory of God and honor that that all sort of speaks to this one reality where humanity is playing this role within creation as the glory of God uh, being image of God within creation the creation that is God's temple and um that mode of life that scripture envisions is worship worship in the Bible is a holistic mode of life um and it depends it, it, it envisions um, humans bringing forth creations flourishing and spreading globally uh, the shalom of God and embodying the rule of the one true God over God's creation. Worship in the Bible is not something that humans do for 18 minutes on a Sunday morning. It's it's all of life lived as the glory of God. So all of that is, uh, that's God's intention. And that you can see that in Romans one, where it's alluded to, when glory terminology comes up, in fact, think of that reality every time you see glory throughout Romans, because that's what Paul is getting at: that reality, that reality as it was intended, that reality lost, and that reality on the way to being recovered. Um, that's alluded to in Romans one, where where Paul talks about the surrender of the image or the exchange of image. Uh, becoming, and, and here's how he portrays human rebellion. Human rebellion is not just random sin or random disobedience. The way that Paul portrays this is that humanity has kind of thrown off this um, this commissioned role, being image of God within the temple that is God's creation. They've thrown off this role of being glory of God and have become in the image of something within creation whether that's an animal or some human or a serpent or whatever. And I think that what is being alluded to here is just all sorts of idolatry. Not only um, did the first humans attend to the voice of the snake, of the serpent, and do what the serpent suggested that they do, um, in that sense, they sort of became in the image of the serpent not only has that happened, but humans have also seen themselves as image of all kinds of other things within creation. Humans were created to be image of the unseen God, the one who creates, who is outside of creation, but intimately involved with creation. And the fundamental human error is that humanity has come to see itself as actually image representative of uh, something within creation. That is the fundamental, the fundamental uh, rebellion of humanity. Humans being in the image of anything else within creation, something that has been created is the character of idolatry. I just think this is such a rich notion for analyzing so many dynamics of our lives. Um, my goodness, some of the ways that we um, see ourselves in the image of, you know, cultural expectations of what a good white middle class, uh, you know, man looks like, um, seeing myself in the image of my parents' expectations, uh, becoming in the image of, you know, what everybody expects from a biblical studies professor or, um, see myself, you know, as, as a representative of a good American. I mean, there are all sorts of idolatries that creep into our lives, and um, I think this has been such a fascinating rubric for seeing the whole of my life and its worship dimension. That is, being in Im- being image of God and being glory of God. Irenaeus said, the glory of God is the human fully alive. So what does that mean, and what are the competing idolatries that get in the way of that? Um, that's one of the reasons why exploring that notion is one of the reasons why I've tried uh, to talk skillfully and theologically about dynamics of whiteness and um, how social class works on our culture, because um, all of these involve idolatries and all of these open up vistas into the unique ways that we can participate in God's work of salvation in Christ. Anyway, I'd love to talk more about that. I just think that um, the nature of how Paul talks about, the exchange is such a rich window for reflection. And don't think in terms of, I don't think that this is what Paul is portraying. I don't think he's portraying like a bunch of people gathered and um, on the pedestal is sort of like the God of Israel and they take it off. Instead, they put a serpent up there. It's not that like this is active worship directed toward in some kind of a cultic ritual or some kind of religious ceremony. Um, this has a whole lot more to do with how humans conceive of themselves. When, if you think about Adam and Eve, or, I mean, the first humans, when they were attending to the voice of God, like when Adam named the animals, um, he receives a commission from the one true God, the creator to do this. And he does it. He's being image bearer. He's being image and glory of God in that moment. Uh, So it has everything to do with how humans think of themselves and what they represent. Like what what transcendent reality do I represent? That's the question. And in the moment where the humans are speaking with the serpent and they then take up the suggestion uh, to do what the serpent suggests and follow um, sort of his leading uh, counsel, they become in that moment image of the serpent because they're sort of taking their, you know, their orienting points and um, their options for possible behavior from the serpent and not from their commission from the one true God to actually subdue um, active agents like the serpent. So this has everything to do with human identity. It doesn't have to do with like cultic uh, worship. The exchange is an exchange of identity. And um, that is what. Has been messed up. So the holistic mode of human life as worship has gone off the rails. And that's what Paul is getting at here. So the the nature of human rebellion is really, really important to understand. It's not just like, yeah, everybody's sinned. What Paul is getting at here at the deep narrative level um, is that what's gone wrong with humanity is that humanity has become in the image of something within creation, some created thing. Any any kind of created thing uh, becomes an idolatry. Uh, it's a way of humanity looking at a tree or looking at a, a carved marble statue, however beautiful it is, and saying, that lifeless thing, that's the thing that's greater than me and gives, my, gives me my identity. So that's the thing that's gone wrong in Romans 1, uh, 18 to 32. And that's a reflection, really, of the narrative moves that Scripture makes in Genesis 1 to 3. Uh, because of that, moving on sort of through the narrative substructure of Romans, because of that, uh, humans, all of humanity, uh, are enslaved under sin as a cosmic power. Yes, Paul does say that everybody has sinned in Romans 3.23, uh, but before he says that, uh, he talks about cosmic enslavement. It's not merely the case that each person is a sinner, it's that sin... As a cosmic power, has hijacked creation, and holds all of humanity enslaved. Um, And so what needs to happen is for humans to actually be liberated. Yep, forgiveness is necessary, but also what needs to happen is human liberation. And Paul, again, is here working from Scripture. Um, God has a conversation with Cain in Genesis 4, and he says, basically indicates Um, that sin as this active cosmic agent is after Cain to dominate and enslave him. But he says, you, Cain, must master it. Um, So already, I mean, we're not even out of Genesis 4, and we already have these cosmic actors up and running. And uh, Genesis depicts sin as having aims and desires, this goal to dominate humans. And as Beverly Gaventa brilliantly points out, as do a number of other um, scholars of Pauline apocalyptic, in Romans 5, 12 and following, um, Paul depicts sin and death as these active agents, um, these um, these illegitimate entrants onto the stage of the human drama that shouldn't be here. Uh, when the first humans disobeyed, sin and death entered and um, have enslaved all of creation. And this is not a situation that should be up and running. But anyway, that's the situation that we find. So cosmic enslavement, human rebellion, cosmic enslavement. Uh, And the problem is, is that humans have sinned. Part of the problem is humans have sinned, Romans 3.23. And they lack the glory of God, that's a massive problem. It's not simply that humans have sinned. And so many of our English translations let us down here uh, because they give us something like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that translation of that verb leads us to imagine that there was like the standard of perfection that all humans are responsible to kind of uh, seek to meet and we all fall short of it, and of course, you know, of course, Christ kind of makes up that lack, and that's how we get forgiveness and righteousness, and that's how we get saved. That is such a poor scenario. That's not at all what's happening here. Paul is saying that humans all all have sinned and lack the glory of God. That is to say, humans have become in some other condition than glory of God. Image of God has been marred or lost or corrupted or perverted or whatever. Um, within God's temple there are no, humanity's not playing its role that's a massive problem we're not playing our role as image and glory of God and humanity is enslaved to sin um but in Romans 3:21 uh, to 26 we get the first statement of the solution God has entered that situation and has rectified those who are in Christ he has set right those who are in Christ or justified. Um, I take justification to have, uh, not merely some kind of declaration of innocence or forgiveness or righteousness or something like that. Justification in Romans, just like in Galatians, second Corinthians, justification, um, has to do with transformation. Uh, the problem was humans are not being in image of God mode. They're not being glory of God. And God has acted in Christ to transform them into image of God. It's a a situation that's very specific that God has recovered in Christ. And he's done it through the deliverance or the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is envisioning there in verse 24 is liberation from sin's enslavement. Humanity was enslaved to the cosmic power of sin. And just like... Israel was enslaved to Egypt and God brought them out. And the verb for that in the Old Testament is redemption. He liberated and enslaved people and brought them into the promised land. Paul knows that story well and so uses its vocabulary. God has redeemed or delivered out of enslavement to sin, God's people in Christ. So he has set right those who are in Christ through the deliverance out of enslavement that is in Christ Jesus. Um, and so, moving ahead in the narrative, um, all those who are in Christ um, are not fully liberated yet. We're not finally liberated yet, which we will be at the full uh, experience of salvation at the future day of Christ. Uh, but in five one to eleven, Paul talks about our current identity. And these three uh, appearances of the term exalt or boast, what shapes our identity, is that we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And remember what glory of God means? It's the full recovery of our humanity as image bearers, as glory of God, as those who are commissioned to rule over creation for its flourishing and for the glory of God. And just um, a little bit after this in verse 17 of chapter five, uh, Paul talks about how we are destined to reign because God is about the full recovery of our humanity in Christ. So uh, our current existence uh, is one where we are set right, we are transformed, um, brought out of enslavement to sin and death, but we're not fully transformed yet. So we're kind of in this in-between time on our way to full and entire transformation. And that means that now... um, our mode of existence is one where we groan with the groaning creation. Um, and this is what Paul gets at in chapter 8. We, we suffer with one another, and we suffer with this suffering creation. Creation is groaning because humanity has not yet been fully returned to being image of God and glory of God. Um, if we were, creation would not be groaning. But creation is groaning because it does not have humanity as a whole as caretakers, as rulers of, of it, uh, over it, um, as those who subdue chaos and care for and nourish creation, making it flourish and having a reciprocal relationship with it of blessing. One day, and this is what Paul looks forward to, one day creation will be liberated Um And its liberation is fully tied with the glorification of the children of God. When the children of God are glorified, that is when we are returned to our glory, um, then creation will be relieved and will finally be made to flourish. But that's the day that we look forward to. Um, That's the day that we long for and that we should be praying for. And that is an identity that we should all be living into Um, since that's our future destination and that's the current reality that God is, uh, seeking to create within us. And that's the reality that many of us are resisting with all of our might, um, by participating in practices and societal patterns that lead to the plunder of creation. Um, but again, this is where confession of sin and repentance come in. So the narrative, uh, as it runs through chapter eight so far is original commission, God's original design, according to creation, um, with humanity as God's glory image of God, the character of human rebellion by just leaving and abandoning that role. And then the moves, uh, the subsequent enslavement, uh, the subsequent cosmic enslavement because of human rebellion and then God's moves, uh, to liberate humanity and to transform humanity and, um, our ultimate destination of full transformation and the in-between time of celebrating that identity, but also suffering with a suffering creation. Um, Kind of speed ahead a little bit to chapter 12. Um, Chapter 12 gets at our current worship. Remember I said worship is um, the full participation of humanity in holistic modes of flourishing under the the kingship of the one true God. Worship is an entire mode of life. And because God has recovered and is recovering the worship of humanity as a holistic mode of life, Paul calls his communities to actually worship in Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, where he says to present your bodies, body talk, present your bodies as a singular Living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, because that's your fitting worship. When you embrace one another, when you uh, seek to enjoy the unity that God has created among his people, when you seek the other's flourishing, when you embrace the other across uh, lines of difference, that is worship. That is worship. That is how you as a community depict the character of the transcendent and unseen God within creation um and then just to sort of restate that in other terms and i mentioned this in talking uh, about beverly gaventa's book because she's tracking with this as well far more skillfully than i um but paul talks about how our community lives are the glory of god in chapter 15 verse 7 and in chapter 15 verses 7 and 8 or 7 7 to 9 um that is the ultimate exhortation in paul's letter to the romans He wants these competing factions to welcome one another and embrace one another, to offer uh, one another warm hospitality and to um, foster unity for the glory of God. Again, worship language, image of God language, it's all there. So the narrative substructure of Romans is the story of the loss and the recovery of human worship. That is. Holistic lives in community, characterized by mutual embrace and hospitality and justice doing for the glory of God. And Paul narrates this story throughout the whole of Romans because it's the story that encompasses all Christians. It's our story. It's the story that we've been drawn into by the Spirit as He locates us cosmically in the new and renewed cosmic space of Christ Himself. In Paul's language, The Spirit baptizes us into Christ. He plunges us deeply into Christ. So that's our new cosmic location. We are no longer cosmically located under uh, the domination of sin. We are now located in renewed cosmic space in Christ as God is recovering and um, renovating his temple. He's renewing creation, which is his temple space. He's taking it back. He's not satisfied with its corruption and pollution. And that involves recovering um, his image within his temple. So all of that is to say, uh, when we think about 118 to 32, uh, this is not how Christians are to understand non-Christians. It's not a diagnosis of where non-Christians are at. It's, It's how Christians understand their story. That's the opening of the story, and it's part of a larger narrative that ends in glory. And glory um, means the recovery of our true humanity, of our full humanity. So anyway, this is this is our narrative. It's a story that we are located in. And um, yeah, at some point, man, I'm realizing this is long now. I, I thought this would just be some quick intro to talking about, the details of 118 to 32, but I think perhaps that's sufficient for this episode. Um, at some point, I wanted to talk about that narrative substructure. Uh, I, I meant to do it in the previous episode, but I didn't. Uh, I think it's important to understand that because there's such rich material for reflection on what it means to be Christian and what inherited narratives are up and running in our culture that seduce us as Christian people away from our identity and the slipperiness of idolatry that uh, Israel struggled biblical Israel struggled with in the scriptures of Israel the same slipperiness we face in our day that is all these inherited narratives that are so positive that seem so right and good and safe those are threats and um, not not the obviously dangerous ones you know that are often highlighted Uh, but the ones seduce us that are closest to us and that seem the most normal and the most hopeful. Um, But reckoning rightly with our identity helps us to see uh, who God has created us to be and what we are supposed to be all about um, as Christian people, the joy um, to which we are actually called. So like I said, if you want... um, some pieces of writing that I've done that kind of get at this narrative substructure that runs under all of Romans. Send me an email. I'm happy to send these along. Um, my hope is that, um, this is what the marketer, uh, the marketing genius to whom I'm related by marriage, uh, would be telling me and has been telling me to create a resource page where I can just put all this on my blog. But, just, I haven't done it yet. Yeah, I got to do it. I'd like to put that on there but um, so that people could just access them without um, having to take the time to write an email. Whatever. If you want some of this, I've offered Wisdom of Solomon chapters 12 to 15 and these documents. And if you want a copy of the Mark Commentary, send me an email. I'm happy to send these along to you. No problem. I look forward to next episode getting into some of the details of uh, chapter one, verses 18 to 32. My goodness, today is an astoundingly beautiful day. Don't let it get away.